Good morning, beautiful people. Welcome back to the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk. I'm Babs Rose Ivy. I'm delighted to talk to now, Kathy. Is it Hermes, like the expensive de- designer line? <laughs> not at all. I'm not related to anybody wealthy or the Greek god. It's Hermes, <laughs> Kathy Hermes. <laughs> so Kathy Hermes is here because uh, she's got an, a talk coming up at the the New Haven Museum, which is one of my favorite spaces in the city. I think is one of the coolest places. Um, but anyway, she's coming to talk about uncovering their history. African, African-American, and Native American burials presentation. And I think this is happening September 14th. You can go to their site and, and log on so that y'all can, can go. But you're, you're like a, a you're, you're educator, historian, author, and, and this is what you know a great deal about. <laughs> <laughs> so how did Thank you, you. T- talk, talk to me about when you wake up one day, do you say, you know what, I, I really want to know about what people were like in this state way before anybody else was thinking about what people were like in this state. That's, that's how much of a nerd I am. I actually do wake up thinking that. <laughs> I, I think um, it, this began for me in 1999 when I, um, I'd been living in Connecticut for about two years teaching at Central Connecticut State University. And I was asked to do a documents piece on native people for Connecticut History Review, which is the academic journal put out by the Association of Scholars in Connecticut History. And I discovered that there were about eight Native American estate administrations in Hartford County before 1750. And I started transcribing those wills and estate administrations. And after that, I became obsessed with finding out who these people were and what their connections were. And and then jumping forward to 2018, the Ancient Burying Ground Association in Hartford was interested in knowing how many people of color were buried in the Ancient Burying Ground because the number 300 had always been thrown around, but nobody really knew. And they also wanted to know who those people were to some extent, right? They wanted a, you know, a report. And so what I proposed instead was to create a website where we would try to find the names of every single person of color we could, and we would put them in a database. And then we would create a website memorial where each one would have a profile on that website as a kind of virtual marker. Hmm. Because right now, if I don't know if, how many of your listeners have been to the ancient burying ground in Hartford, even though it's pretty prominent because it's on Main Street and Gold Street on the corner there behind Center Church, a lot of people walk by it every day and don't really know it's there. But it's now about a quarter of an acre and there are say 415 or so headstones Um, that are in the burying ground, and those have all been cataloged. But at one time, this was about four to six acres and held 6,000 people. Whoa. Yeah. And so so we found about 500 people of color that we think are probably buried there. And because we don't know for sure, because there are no headstones, 
for anybody but the 415. Um, what we did was we rated them according to confidence. So if we found them on a sexton's list, meaning like a list of the person who dug the graves or recorded the burials, we knew we were highly confident that they were in the burying ground. If we found that a notice that they had died, for example, in the newspaper, um, then we were somewhat confident because we knew they died in Hartford and anybody who died in Hartford was usually buried in the burying ground. Um, then we have slightly confident where they were mentioned perhaps in a probate record because of course enslaved people were property and so they were inventoried as property in the estate administrations of white people who, who owned them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if somebody was an elderly person of color in a probate record, then we assumed that they probably died in Hartford. For younger people, we couldn't assume that because it was, of course, still possible to sell them or to manumit them, uh, and they might leave the state. So we tried not to make assumptions. You know, if we were, if we didn't have some reason to think they were buried there, we tried not to make assumptions. And then we have the not confident. They, they appear in records. They seem old enough to have died in Hartford, but we're not too sure. And so we put those as not confident. So I would say we're highly or somewhat confident about 400 people. That's a lot. It's a lot. Um, That's a lot. So did you, I think I want to, I want to know were there, were there separate burials places for enslaved people as opposed to with white folks? Like, how did you, how did you figure that part out? Well, so we had to operate totally with written records. You know, we couldn't, we don't have any archeological information and we don't have any headstones, as I mentioned. Um, So we went to the church records and to government records, uh, court cases, probate records, um, even Siemens certificates and things like that to get the names of the people of color who lived in Hartford and then kind of sort out who might be buried there. And as far as we know, um, people weren't separated by color. They may have been separated by uh, economics, right? Um, but we don't know that. The, the, the burying ground doesn't seem to have been divided up in any particular way um, that I know of. And that's different from some cemeteries like Grove Street Cemetery um, in New Haven did have a place for people of color. In fact, that's what it was called on a map from the early 19th century. Um, so, So some graveyards were like that and others were not. And I think it probably depended for enslaved people where the owners wanted to bury them. Um, For free people of color, I think they could have purchased uh, any spot in the the graveyard. Um, You had to pay for the burial and for the coffin and things like that. So all of that was billed to the estate. Mm. So when you do this kind of work, Kathy, what, what do you want us to understand and take away from this kind of uh, looking at history, because this is looking at 
b- burial things. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what does that tell us? And what should we take away from that? You know, it's this hugely personal and intimate view that you get of people at death. And I think what I'd like people to see in this particular group of people of color in, in Hartford in the colonial period is just the, the incredible humanity present there among people who were not always treated as fully human or fully members of the community. And some of it is shocking. For example, um, in the in the Sexton's records, you'll sometimes see unnamed Negro. Um, you'll see an age and a cause of death and the name of an owner, but no name. And that we found 125 unnamed people. And that is just, you know, it's deliberate, right? And they haven't left off the name because they don't know who this is. When somebody is 104 years old, they know exactly who that is. Um, Even when it's an infant, an infant sometimes might not be named, but the parent is known, but they're, you know, the mother certainly, but those names are left off frequently. And I think what I want people to see about enslavement in Connecticut was that it was not some kinder, gentler form of slavery. There is no such thing. And the enslavement of African people was brutal. Um, we have stories on our website about family structure, for example, and like how how families could be separated. Um, one story is um, Abigail Woodbridge, who was the wife of the minister of the first church, Timothy Woodbridge, and Timothy Woodbridge was also a president of Yale. Um, she gave her son a wedding present of two enslaved people, a couple and their infant son, but that separated that couple and the son from their daughters. And then Timothy Woodbridge gave one of the daughters to his daughter. And so family structure was just torn apart, the same as you would read about in the South. Mm -hmm. Um, The punishments were the same, whippings. Um, You had people dying of the same diseases like dropsy, and that was from nutritional deficiencies. So this was not some kind of benign system. Um, so what do you make of, I, I, I find this fascinating. So for a historian, what do you make of this whole conversation that this country seems to be in, gripped with of critical race theory and not telling the story of how enslaved people arrived here and what their lives were like for fear of white folks feeling like they're being persecuted for something that they themselves didn't do their ancestors. But how do you, how do, what do you make of this, this conversation? Yeah, I get asked this a lot. In fact, one of my cousins asked me, you know, is critical race theory something that they teach in grade schools? And I said, no, even when I was in law school, it's a, it's a legal theory, right? Critical studies is critical legal studies is a field in law school. And even when I was in law school, we heard very little about it. Um, But it was a theory founded by Derek Bell to kind of explain why African-Americans were treated so differently in the criminal justice system. And it's really something that was engaged with at a very high level of 
thinking in legal circles. Um, but that said, the problem of race in this country is, is unsolved, right? I mean, and that's why every so often, I think we get these um, surges of uh, racism is a low level thing in our society all the time, but we get these surges of anger on many sides. It's different kinds of anger. And I think what we're seeing right now is, uh, as you mentioned, that white people feel blamed. For me, this is a, you know, you're, you're responsible for what you do, not for what your ancestors have done. But if you don't change and you don't do something to address the past injustices, then you're continuing to do something wrong, right? And that's why you feel some residual guilt, I think. You know, it's, a, it's about trying to change yourself and those around you for the better and making society more equal. That's the promise that is made in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution in the 14th Amendment. And we owe something to posterity to live up to that. Mm. Are you struck by how people have the conversation about uh, Southern slavery versus Northern slavery, and that there's this myth that there was no slavery here and that, you know, it was, a, it was different. <laughs> Oh, 100%. So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And of course, the, the famous Connecticut person we knew was Harriet Beecher Stowe. And I thought when I was growing up, I thought of um, Connecticut as an abolitionist state. I had, I had no idea that there were enslaved people here. Now, once I got to graduate school and I started um, working on the Puritans, my, my dissertation was on religion and law in colonial New England. So I certainly understood that there were enslaved people, but I didn't really know much about the conditions of it until I did this project for the Ancient Burying Ground Association. I didn't know what I told you before about the statistics with what people died of, right? Or just how poverty stricken some people were. Um, you know, dying with only a pair of pants and a lean-to, even though they might be free people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes the poverty was just staggering. And what is a lean-to? Uh, a lean-to is <laughs> like a shed <laughs> that's falling down. Oh, okay. <laughs> that gives, yeah, gives you some shelter at night. Um, and, and, but I also, conversely, I also didn't know about some of the free people of color in the very early period. So one of the first things I found for the ancient burying ground were wills left by Philip and Ruth Moore in 1695 and 1696 respectively. And they were landowners in what is now East Hartford over by where Goodwin University is. Um, they had property, they had an orchard, they had a farm, they lived among their white neighbors. They were members of the church um, and their children and grandchildren were members of the church. But, you know, as more and more enslaved people came into the state, being black meant being enslaved. And the, the status of the Moors 
fell, unlike the status of their white neighbors, which tended to be upwardly mobile. And after 1737, I cannot find any more Moors in Hartford. I don't know what happened to them. I know that they sold, they quit claimed a lot of their land to their white neighbors. And probably they moved because it was becoming clear that being Black and owning land was something that was not going to be easy in Connecticut. Mm. Um, and so, there, yeah. go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, and then there are people like Sally Cuff, who was enslaved by John Haynes Lord, one of the richest men in Connecticut. He, he When he died, he had an estate of over 5,000 pounds. He baptized her in 1768. In 1782, she paid him 100 pounds for her freedom. Um, just two years later, the gradual emancipation law went into effect, but she would not have benefited from that probably. And so this poor woman who had been enslaved her entire life paid one of the richest men in Hartford an enormous sum to be free. Wow. And it's both, it, it's both the cruelty of it and the inspiring part of it are both side by side. Wow. So, uh, so Connecticut has a very rich slavery history. Yes. Yes. And such interesting stories. Samuel Gibson, when he died in 1795 in his 30s, he was quite young, he has an obituary in the Hartford Current that refers to him as Mr. Gibson. He had been enslaved in the West Indies, was purchased by a family in Guilford, the Frisbee family, bought his freedom, moved to Hartford, opened a grocery store. And when I say grocery, I mean, he did business in all of New England. He advertised in all of the big New England papers. He was well-respected as a grocer. His apprentice was his former master's son. And when he died, he left his entire estate to that young man. Because he didn't have his family? I He did not seem to have family. And I think, you know, it's a it's a complicated thing, right? You're when a person is enslaved, they have they're natally alienated. That's what the sociologists call it, right? You don't have your natal family from birth often, and you might not be able to form a family because your owner controls all of that. Your owner decides if you can marry or not, right? And so a lot of enslaved men who came from other places, either from West Africa or from the Carolinas or from the West Indies, when they died, they did not have wives or children. And they sometimes left their estates to the people who had formerly enslaved them. Wow. That's heavy. It, it is. It really is. Oh, and, and it's hard to, and I think that's the complexity of it, right? It's not, I think what I want people to take away from all of this is that these were complex human relationships in a colonial world that one had to survive in, right? And human beings seek out affection. They seek out relationships, but they also are subject to abuse. And we all know that abusive relationships can be complicated too. Um, so I think 
we don't know enough to assess every individual relationship because the records are pretty scant. But it tells us that this was a complex society with many different kinds of relationships in it. So talk to me about the the indigenous people and their relationship yeah. to to how they were treated and what was going on in their burial situations. Well, so from the first, um, in 1637, when Hartford was settled, there was the Pequot War. And the Pequot War resulted in the captivity of most Pequot women and children and boys under 12. Other Pequot people were sold, uh, the adult men were sold into slavery on Providence Island and Bermuda, places like that, um, after the war. And in 1638, in the treaty, the Wangunk people, who were the people who settled Hartford, uh, Wethersfield, Haddam, Middletown, so the Wangunk people were left out of the Treaty of Hartford. And they've largely been erased from Connecticut history. One of my missions is to restore them to some prominence. Um, we have, for example, a number of stories. Sarah One Penny the Elder, who died in 1713 in the home of William Whiting in Hartford, who was a military man and, a, and the jailer at one time and um, quite a prominent man. She left her estate to her grandson, Scipio Two-Shoes. William Whiting was made the guardian of that young man. In 1724, after Whiting's wife passed away in an epidemic, Whiting courted a widow in Newport. Whiting and Scipio Two-Shoes left Connecticut in 1727 and moved to Newport where Scipio became Scipio Brown free person of color, the most litigious person of color in colonial Newport. So, <laughs> he, and, and Scipio was- Was, was he suing African. people? Like what was he doing? <laughs> he, yeah, suing people. He was a carter. And so he wanted his money. And if people would sue him, he invented the countersuit in Newport. He would sue them back. Uh, you're suing me, I'm gonna sue you. And he was- part Wangunk and part African. His father was African, his mother was Wangunk. Wow. And uh, so, you know, we, so Sarah Wenpenny is almost certainly buried in Hartford in the burying ground. Um, and she was the sunk squaw that is referred to in records in Middletown because she was a very powerful elder woman. She was the granddaughter of Sequin or Soeig who was the grand sachem of the Wangunk at the time of colonization. And um, she and her siblings and cousins lived all along the Connecticut River and had many descendants. And I've been doing their genealogies for 20 years now. So you found, so they are descendants of these folks. Yes. And do they, do they have any stories to tell you about what they remember, what has been told, what, what has been handed down? So the descendants of um, like the of Sequin, uh, the only ones I talked to are the descendants of Turamugus, who was the sachem of Weathersfield, or you know, 
Pequog, but what's now Weathersfield. Um, but I have talked extensively to Gary O'Neill, who is Wangunk, and he's a family historian and really, uh, although the Wangunk have no tribal structure, he's really the tribal historian. And he's published on that in the Connecticut Archaeological Bulletin, family stories that are really just incredible. Um, so yes, there are Wangunk uh, left. There are um, people of certainly kind of mixed heritage, Mohegan, Wangunk, Pequot, Nipmunk, um, Tunxus. There, um, and of course, a lot of the Wangunk went westward with something called the Brotherton Movement, and their descendants now live in Wisconsin. Mm. So, 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 tell me, um, tell me, because you you are the director of un uncovering their history. Yes. So, what 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 do you hope to accomplish? Like, what 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 is the mission and the goal? So, I would say there are multiple missions. I mean, one is that in a big picture way, I'm trying to understand more of these colonial relationships and how native people and people of African descent um, strategically found their way in the colonial world. You know, how did they interact? What were their relationships like? Um, I'm using a lot of court cases for that, but I want a big picture to understand their place in that world. Um, but there's another purpose, I think, which is that many people believe that you can't find out anything about the African and Native people because there's just too little information. And that's not true. It's harder to find and it's cumbersome. And so what I want to do is I want to provide the starting point for that. That was the whole purpose of this ancient burying ground project that we're hoping can be a model for other um, burying ground groups and researchers who want to undertake it. So we created Ancestry.com trees for every named person we found. And we researched to the extent we could so that people who are coming backward can meet up with our research that went forward, if that makes sense. So. Mm -hmm. We started with people born in 1690 and worked our way up. And, but people who are starting from there, uh, you know, from themselves right now and working their way down can meet up with our trees. Mm. And then we also did relationship trees, which are um, other relationships. So master-slave right, which you can't put in an Ancestry.com tree, or business partners, um, the beneficiaries of wills. Um, believe it or not, some white people did leave things to the people they enslaved, or they manumitted them in their wills, but also people of color left wills. Native people left wills. I have 46 native wills that I've wow. found in Connecticut um, and lots of African-American wills. And why did they leave wills? Because this was important to them. They wanted to, what? They had to figure legacy? Out, they had to figure out how to protect their land and make sure that their children were taken care of and their grandchildren were taken care of. And oftentimes they were struggling to figure out how to do that. 
Um, well, William Whiting that I mentioned earlier was kind of a cultural broker for several native women who left wills to try to protect things like 30 Mile Island, um, which was native land or just the land in the Wangunk Reservation. Um, and, and I think at some point too, as native people Christianized, they did it because that's what their neighbors did. They were acculturating to some degree. Um, but you still find interesting things that um, separate their estates from other estates, the use of native names, um, the, some of the possessions. Um, for example, among a lot of African or African-American men, they possess violins. And I think that's such a, it's such a distinguishing feature. It's not that no white people had violins, but so many African-American men have them. And people also had Bibles. And that tells you something about literacy. Like I found many more literate people of color than I thought I would find. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And so I, I, these little details matter. Oh, I, I absolutely agree that they matter because it gives us a, 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 a intimate look and a bigger picture of what these folks look like. Because uh, I, I know people in Connecticut, just some of them really refuse to believe that slavery existed and that it was some kind of kinder, gentler. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it all the time. I I have heard it at public talks I've given. And, and I understand, you know, this is a long standing myth. And if you look at the published account of who's buried in the ancient burying ground, there were accounts published in the 1880s. And there are um, people of color who are mentioned in there, both native people and uh, people of African descent, but not all of them. So what you get is the feeling that, well, there were all the, there were only a few and they were baptized and well cared for and buried <laughs> in the ancient burying ground, like family members. And, you know, this is a post-Civil War Connecticut as abolition state, right? As union state. That's And these antiquarians, these um, people in the Daughters of the American Revolution at the time and colonial societies wanted to paint a positive picture of Connecticut as anti-slavery. And, but they did so at the expense of really- The, the truth. truth. The truth. <laughs> It's so the expense of the truth. And I'm not so certain that, you know, even the ones who felt like they weren't as bad as their sisters and brothers in the South, I bet you they were terrible, horrible people, but you, it's hard to reconcile that. So Kathy, tell me, how do you as a white woman take on this work and, and, and do, are you constantly in, adjusting your equity and inclusion lens? Like, how do you, how do you do this work and, and be white in it? (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, I'm over 60 and, um, and I grew up in a place um, that was very homogeneous in a German Catholic family. I thought, I mean, if you weren't German Catholic, you were German Protestant or you were Irish Catholic. That was like who lived around me. 
Um, and, you know, the book that changed my life, that made me become a historian, in fact, was a book by Edmund S. Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom. And Morgan argued in that book that this slavery freedom paradox was really at the core of American history and that every freedom possessed by white people was obtained in a way because of the enslavement of others, that this was a symbiotic relationship. This had never occurred to me that my freedom depended on the unfreedom of someone else. Wow. Right? And it, it shook my world. I, I mean, it made me think, does my freedom as somebody who's not incarcerated depend on somebody being incarcerated? Is my position in the labor market advanced because there's somebody else who can't get that job? Um, you know, what levels of unfreedom exist that contribute to my having so many? And, and I thought if I could do something even like one hundredth this good <laughs> as that book, it would be worth my while. And so I abandoned my desire to be a lawyer and I became a historian. Now I did also go to law school because I don't know, I felt I owed it to my father or something. <laughs> so I, I became a legal historian, but it, it changed my life. Um, I grew up working class. My father was police officer. Um, I, I didn't even, you know, I wasn't thinking that I, I could ever go to a place like Yale and study with Edmund Morgan, but that is what I did. Um, and this was just an enormous amount of upward mobility and privilege for me that I know depends in part, some part on my whiteness, um, particularly at the time that I did it, um, because equity and inclusion wasn't a thing. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it was for women, you know, like I benefited from some affirmative action directed at women for certain. Um, especially when I went to college, I got a state incentive grant in Idaho because they didn't have enough women in college. So, you know, um, but I think my whole life has been adjusting to what I've learned as a historian and incorporating that into both my personal views, but also into the scholarship that I do and what I try to write and publish. Um, and I don't think you can leave race or class out of it or mm. frankly, sex. Yeah. Um, it, it all matters. Ah. I enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad I got to speak to you. And if anybody else wants to have, wants to hear more of this, um, she's going to be September 14th at the New Haven Museum. And yes. there's a whole conversation and exploration and exhibition of this very topic, which I think people will find fascinating. I, I so appreciate being here. And I, I hope you don't mind if I put in a little plug for the magazine that I'm now Yes, absolutely. Um, so, can, so I just retired from Central Connecticut State uh, from the history department where I taught early American history and I became the publisher of Connecticut Explored, 
And our issue this month, the fall uh, 2022 issue, is devoted to 20 game changers, projects that are changing the future of the way history will be done in Connecticut. And so, of course, they're introducing new stories. And many of these are stories of people of color and groups that have been marginalized and left out of the big picture. And so um, we have some um, great talks and public events coming up. And in fact, the New Haven Museum talk that I'm doing, I agreed to do when I was still a professor at CCSU and didn't know that I would be publisher of Connecticut Explored at the time, but Connecticut Explored is the reason this talk is happening because we named the ancient burying ground as a game changer. Oh, good. <laughs> That's exciting. I love this. Well, I'm, I'm going to do my best to make it to the talk because I want to hear more of this. I've enjoyed meeting you and talking to you. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you for having me. It's it been such a pleasure. Oh, come back anytime. We can have all more right. conversations about all the other things that you find and learn and discover. I'm here for it. So feel free to make this your place to come to talk. <laughs> all right. I will. Thank you so much, Beth. <laughs> all right. Have a good day. Everybody have a good weekend. Thank you, Harry Droz. I'll be back on Monday. Uh, Y'all go to the New Haven Museum, to their website, register for this talk, September 14th. You, you will not be disappointed. Yeah.